0: Okay, 1 Samuel, please, chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 11 today. Now, we are not going through verse by verse by verse, because that would scare you. Uh, There's like 30 chapters or so in this book. Uh, We're just looking at the life of Hannah, and we're going to look at the life of Samuel. Only a couple of glimpses in their lives, all right? A character study. And the theme I've given, or the title I've given to it, is Living Godly in an Ungodly World. And I think it has a lot of application to us. That's not hard to see the the parallels between their challenges and our challenges in our world today. Um, These folks, these two, Hannah and her son Samuel, both stand out in a very ungodly culture. And we're not going to go through all the details of that. That's been for the last uh, couple of weeks we've done that. Um, But today, I want to focus especially on her prayer. And it's on verse number 11. Uh, Let's see, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, Verse number 9, I'm going to start in 9 and 10 and 11. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come, On his head. Lord, we're just going to look at a little portion here today of a prayer. The lady who trusted you in a very difficult situation. And I pray that we will glean much from this prayer as we focus upon it. Just a reminder of who you are, how great you are, and how you have, in your mercy, looked down upon us. What what a thing that is to... Just count into our hearts and lives and know how much you love us. I pray, Lord, you help us with our study today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at verse number 10 and found some interesting things. I would say we were blessed, even though you read the verse number 10 and you say, Huh? She was greatly distressed that she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. You say, Well, where's the blessing in all that? That sounds like uh, rather depressing words to emphasize, uh, distressed and wept bitterly. But but there was a beauty in that passage, and I hope we didn't miss that. In Psalm 51, pretty dramatic psalm in the Old Testament, uh, David wrote, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Far too often, I'm afraid, when we are greatly distressed, a believer turns away from prayer. I don't know why that is. We do. We assume that maybe our distress is a sign that God doesn't want to hear from us. There are some who tell you that, too. Whatever trouble you have, it must mean that God's angry with you, or God's punishing you, or... Something, you better get right with the Lord. And and uh, so many times those voices either are heard audibly or somewhere inside of our heart where we think that because of distress, God must not want to hear from us. That We, we take affliction as if it's a sign of God's disfavor rather than what I like to call His loving call for us to come close to Him. Spurgeon said, many are in bitterness of soul, but they do not pray, and therefore the taste of the wormwood remains. Oh, that they were wise and looked upon their sorrows as the divine call for prayer. Do you think God only wants you when you're happy? That worshippers on a Sunday must all be successful? That uh, if you come here with a heavy burden or a broken heart, you've come to the wrong place. In Jesus' own words, he says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You find those words precious? When we study the life of Hannah here in 1 Samuel, she approached the Lord, even though she was greatly distressed. She was welcomed there in the presence of the Lord. When Hannah prayed, the ears of the Lord were moved into her direction. We have a cat named Greta. We talk about her every now and then. We have, when we were doing our our home Zooming and stuff, she put an appearance in one Sunday, I remember. Uh, But Greta usually will hide when you come to the house. But at times where Greta is sitting there, she sitting across the room somewhere, and she's looking away from us. That means she's upset with us, usually. Um, but she's looking the other way, and she's just sitting there. And you wonder if she is asleep or if she hears you or something. And so every now and then I'll start whispering her name or i make some funny little soft, soft sounds. And those ears just turn backwards, and they're aimed right at me. And I know she's hearing me, but she won't turn her head. She just turns her ears to hear you. And I think it's kind of funny. It's kind of like radar looking for a signal. And there she goes. And I think this is kind of interesting because how often do you find in Scripture the the description that the Lord has tuned his ears to our cry? If you want a good psalm, if, if you're feeling pretty heavy right now and you say, boy, I need something to really help me with this. Psalm 34 is beautiful, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but let me hit just a couple of the highlighted verses. Verse 6, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. In verse 17, the righteous cry, and the Lord hears. That combination just keeps popping up. In verse number 18, The Lord is near to the broken and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Let me just make it simple. Believer, the Lord hears your prayers. His ears are tuned to that. And he hears your praise. But if you do not pray, how can he hear Only in our pride do we not pray. Think about that for a few minutes. Only in our pride do we not pray. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I've been really beaten up hard this time. I, I, I don't pray because I'm too hurt to pray. Examine that phrase. I'm too hurt to pray. Isn't that also a pride problem? A pride even in the wounds? Think about it for a minute. A pleasure some people have with pain because then everyone notices I'm going through a hard time and I get some attention for it. What do you call that? That's self-centered pride. That's bringing it back. Even in wounds, we can do that. Hannah, as I read the text, she didn't relish her troubles. She didn't go around broadcasting it. What did she do? She prayed. It's so simple. And it's got a profoundness to it. She prayed. She prayed honestly, as we talked about last week. She prayed with tears running down her face. True tears that that matched the distressed heart and the bitter soul. She used those words, bitter soul. Yes, she found that she was welcome at the Lord's temple. I just want to look at her prayer today, all right? What was it that she said? When I read through verse number 11 the other day, it took about 20 seconds to speak it. You say, this is quick sermon then, Pastor. 20 seconds? Oh, we got to look at it, though. She might have even said more than what was recorded, but the Lord just wanted this part recorded for us to read today. Now, remember... Hannah was living in an ungodly world. I emphasized that, and I showed you that, and I proved that to you. Religious help was missing. Family consolation was impossible, really. Bitter words came from her rival. It brought her to a place where she did not appeal to the authorities. She didn't suggest a bill in Congress to defend the Baron. She didn't protest the annual feast. She did not retaliate. She took it to the Lord in prayer. There is more power in prayer than any petition or protest or even politician. I know. I watch the news just like you do. We, as believers in our country, spend more effort on trying to write. The wrong and spend less time on praying. We spend our energies on what it takes to solve this problem and that problem. But if you have strength to spend, why don't you spend it on prayer? Because guess who you're talking to? The one who is able to do something about it. Hannah prayed. In verse number 11, she made a vow to the Lord and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now, when I outlined this, it sounded so funny to me, my first approach, as I set it down on paper, so simple. If you will, I will. wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. (laughs) What do you mean by this? Does that bother you to say it that way? That was her prayer. If you will, then I will. Is she making a deal with the Lord? Is she negotiating with him here? You know, some would say, well, there's no place for that kind of prayer for us. But the Lord had a place for it. He put it in this passage. (laughs) He recorded it in his word. It doesn't appear that he was upset with her words, does it? Unless you have a funny Bible, I don't think he left her unable to speak like some others that came into his presence and lost her ability to speak. He didn't strike her down, and he could have if he felt upset about that kind of prayer. Matter of fact, you know what we read? He heard it. And he answered it. And I'm looking at this person, uh, what is she doing here? You know, she didn't really come to the Lord with any kind of leverage. If you're thinking this is some sort of a bargain deal, as if she had some advantage with the Lord in this, this entire prayer is coated with humility. She speaks and she uses the words of a female slave before her master. You saw the words. Your maid servant, your maidservant, she kept bringing that up. So let's, let's look at her request as to what she asked. If you will, if you will. Number one, look in the affliction of your maidservant. If you will, look on the affliction of your maidservant. Lord, just take a look at Hannah here. I'm troubled. I'm humiliated. I'm tormented. That's all in that word, affliction. One translation I read said, if you will look at my wretchedness. That's pretty deep. That's pretty tough. Hardly a place to start a bargain with, right? Here she says, will you look at me, Lord? Will you look with compassion On the misery of your female servant? Will you turn those eyes of pity my way? Will you extend to me the scepter of your mercy? Help! You can read it in there, can't you? It's kind of an interesting request because she's addressing him as the Lord of hosts. Sabiles is the word. The Lord Sabiles, the God of armies. The God of combat, the God of war, the God of conflict. He has a whole army, a host of army of soldiers. Rarely do we put that in a picture of mercy or compassion. But I want to ask you a question. Who would re- you would rather have fight your cause? <laughs> she goes to him who is the God of all armies. Old Testament saints can teach us so much about knowing God. You know, that's who you talk to. So often, I'm afraid, we let our circumstances define our theology. We evaluate God and, and measure God and talk about God from our, the view of our troubles. They knew God by name. They knew God by name. Their, their theology was shaped by their knowledge of Him, not by what they were going through. She calls Him the all-powerful Jehovah, captain of all the armies of heaven, and please look on me with your compassion. I like the way she starts it. Second request. And as you look at me, remember me. Remember me. Think about me. Be mindful of my affliction. Set your eyes and see me as I am. We spruce up for Sunday mornings. I, I wear the suit and the tie and the whole thing. We put on our best so we can worship. But God sees you for who you really are. Doesn't he? He knows who you actually are. Underneath all that... There's no pride in human, in Hannah's prayer here. She says to the God who sees everything, see me as I am, see me, and don't forget me. Don't forget me. Remember me. She's not asking folks for a casual glance here. Not a casual glance. It's not enough that the Lord just spots her in a crowd and then moves on. She's saying, Lord, please just sit your eyes on me and hold me in your thoughts. Quite a few years ago, I I took my daughter Carrie to a Christian concert. We went to see Avalon sing. Some of you know the group Avalon. And, and that was kind of fun. We drove up into Michigan. We were living in Indiana at the time to a concert. I don't even know the town. I don't even know how I got there. It was some some town out in, the, in Michigan somewhere. But we, she was a big fan of Avalon. And, and apparently had spent time communicating with them on the Internet. Facebook and who knows what else. And she kept up with them and, and found out they had a concert and wanted to go. So I said, okay, I'll take you to the concert. Well, after the concert, she asked if she could just stay a little while. And she, she just wanted to go over there and, and, you know, people line up for autographs. They set up tables and all this stuff. And she just wanted to stick around a little bit. Well, after, after, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, the group came out. They were all the way down the hallway, all right? We could see them come out of there, and we were in a room full of a lot of people. And we're standing there on the edge of that crowd. And they came out of their hallway and started to walk down toward the group from their dressing room. And suddenly one of them yells, Carrie! And rushed up and hugged her. And you know what? That shocked me. I said, what is happening here? It was just like, you know, they see so many people... They sign their autographs, and it's one fan after another fan after another fan. They all look alike. But to see somebody recognize her and rush forward and call her out by name, I was impressed. Can you imagine folks going into prayer, and the Lord suddenly shouts your name? You! I've been waiting for you! Shouting your name as if it's the dearest treasure to him. And why wouldn't it be? He died for you. Didn't he? Is there a better display of love than that? Hannah goes before the Lord and says, Lord, remember me. Is he likely to forget somebody he loves so dearly? Is he likely to say, I don't know who that person is. Is the Lord in the practice of forgetting his own children? Folks, if you want to know what her bargaining position is, you just read it. I know I'm afflicted, she says. I know I'm humiliated. I know I'm easily overlooked. I have nothing that I claim. I could appeal to your great majesty your reputation in winning battles, your caring eyes that look upon me, your sympathetic ears that hear me, but you know me. You know me. And you let me come. There's something in a formula, if I want to call it that, in Scripture, and it seems to be like this. The more we become nothing, the more he shows himself to be something. Something. You don't need to impress him, folks. Just rest in him. Just rest in him. Far too often we think we gotta do a a Zacchaeus thing and climb the tree so he'd notice us. We've gotta do something monumental to get his attention. We've gotta do something just so, I mean, there's all these voices out there. How's he gonna hear ours? You pray with a megaphone? You aim it up to the ceiling and shout out as loud as you can because you want to outdo everybody around you. The Lord hears your whisper. Matter of fact, He even knows what you're saying without saying it. It appears that Hannah was just moving her mouth at some point. The Lord heard her. The Lord knew. I want to encourage you in your prayers. When you go before the Lord... Who are you talking to? We can set him up in all these ways of his Majesty and his glory, and songs like that choir, the choir sang this morning that blow me away. And I think, what's it going to be like in heaven when we see him in all his glory and we just fall on our face before him? That's the same God you're talking to today in prayer. What a privilege! What a privilege that he knows you. Knows you by name. Knows you in all that you're going through. He knows your afflictions. He knows your concerns. He knows your needs. Even before you ask them, he knows. And he says, come, just come. Talk to me. I want to hear your voice. I want to see your heart. You don't need to impress him, folks. Just rest in him. Rest in him. That's what she started with. Lord, if you will, if you will, if you will. And there's one more if you will. It's in the next part of the verse. If you will, give your maidservant a son. Okay, here it comes. A son? You remember the story of Jacob and Rachel? Jacob had two Official wives. Is that what we call them? Official wives. It didn't go so well. Uh, he also had two unofficial wives, I guess, if that's how I'm going to use that term. I don't know how to word this exactly. But uh, there were four of them. There was Rachel and Leah, and there was Bilda and Zilpah. And they were having children, uh, kind of like a contest going on. It's almost like there was a scoreboard up on the wall. And poor Rachel, she was losing. She had a zero. And everybody else had children. Leah had children, and Dilda had children, and Zilpah had children. And poor Rachel, no children. And I love the way chapter 30 of Genesis starts. It says Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Now, we don't put enough enthusiasm in the words. She's got him by the collar, all right? You can see that, can't you? You can see that look on her face. Give me children! And she's shaking him a little bit. This guy, she's probably about 80, Alright, you gotta put that in there. Flannel graph doesn't do a good job. But he's about that old and she's shaking him. Give me children, or else I'll die. Little enthusiasm. Jacob got mad. His anger burned against Rachel He said and says, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Woo. Alright, who had dinner where that afternoon? That was a tough day in the household of Jacob and Rachel. Woo! That's where the smoke's coming off the page a little bit there. Hannah did not have Elkanah by the collar. She didn't grab him and shake him and demand children from him. I find that interesting in this text. She took her request to the giver of life. That's where she went. The only one who can open... Or close a wound. She didn't try strategies. Remember Sarah? Everyone knows Sarah's story. She tried strategies by saying, Yeah, if you take my maidservant and have children, then I'll count that as mine. And you know how those stories all went. Any of them work really great? Not at all. You don't see Hannah strategizing here. You don't have her thinking through, how is this going to happen? It's interesting. She just went to the Lord and says, Lord... Notice specifically, I need a son. She didn't just say not not a baby of any any gender. By the way, there's only two male and female. She didn't say that. She wasn't aiming just for the satisfaction of having a baby, as if a baby would solve all of her affliction. She said, Lord, I need a son. I asked for a son. Now, you know in Jewish culture, that would mean that the family name could go on from there, and and he would be an heir. But Elkanah already had a son. Matter of fact, Elkanah already had several sons, if you look back in verse number 4. So this child would not be his firstborn. This child would not be the one who gets a double inheritance. Rather, this would be a son... Born into a godless world. You know, some people are, wrestle with that when they're early married and they're thinking about, you know, should we really have a child in a day like this? What are they going to grow up to have to live through? What are they going to have to count? You as parents, you think about that for your little kids too, don't you? grandparents, you think about that too, don't you? What is the next generation going to look like? Does it worry you? Uh She's asking for a son, and she, she, she sees the world around her. She, she knows that everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. That's the day she's living in. She's living in a world where religious leaders are corrupt. They're all right around her where she's praying. Eli did nothing about his sons. His sons were Terrible. The Levite tribe, which was supposed to be the spiritual tribe that helped people, they were weak. They were weak and spiritually ignorant and inactive. She was asking for another Levite. Do you know that? Because she was of that tribe. She wanted a baby boy that could grow up in this world that desperately needs godly leaders. You think, am I extending that too far? Wait till you get to chapter 2. Her desire was met with a vow. Actually, some of your translations said she vowed a vow. I like that. That's the Hebrew rendering. She vowed a vow. At the start of her prayer, she made a promise to the Lord... And you've got to be careful when you vow a vow. Because the Lord says, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Vows are never treated lightly by the Lord. He puts it in his Old Testament law code as to how to do it, or what to do about it. His law has significant words for those who made a vow. But she was not afraid to vow a vow. She says, if you will, She said, then I will. She followed with a response. This is her promise. She said, this son, look at verse number 11. This son will be dedicated to the Lord all of his life. All of his life. She would give him back to the Lord. Not holding him as a trophy of answered prayer. But this perfect picture, if you will, of self-denial. Not seeking a boy for herself, but the satisfaction that this child is better off living for the Lord than living for her own pride. She would give him a place to the place that needed godliness. She would give him to a priest named Eli, who did a horrible job raising his own sons. She would give him to a family of priests, where Hophni and Phinehas were all about them, who were as ungodly as they come. But in reality, what she was doing was giving him to the Lord. Her firstborn belonged to the Lord. That was her promise. I will give him back to you, Lord. And no razor shall come on his head. That also needs corrected in the final graph, by the way. This guy never had a haircut. you imagine what it looked like when he was 20 or 30? You know what she vowed. We call it the Nazarite vow. It's in Numbers chapter 6. Let me give you some particulars about it. It's rather interesting. Numbers 6 verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of an Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar. Whether made from wine or strong drink, he shall not drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine, from the seeds even to the skin." All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he has separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair, the hair on his head, grow long. All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation he is holy to the Lord. Apparently they could do this over smaller sections of time, say three months or six months. They'd say, I I made a Nazarite vow, and the idea behind that is that I'm going to dedicate myself, separate myself, From all these things, the the wine and the grapes and the the haircuts and the the going near any dead bodies, I've got to separate myself as holy unto the Lord as I request what I ask. I ask it and I ask it. It's almost like fasting in some regard because it's intentionally setting yourself apart in order to concentrate on your need. And that's what they would do. But there were a few occasions where somebody was separated to the Lord from their birth. And the promise that Hannah made was that his entire life he was going to be under the Nazarite vow. Nazar is the word for separated. Nazar, we get Nazarite from that. Separated, that's a Hebrew word consecrated to the Lord, set apart to the Lord, holy to the Lord. That was the Nazarite vow. She vowed that vow, that he would not drink these drinks. He would not get his hair cut. You know, I used to tell my dad that as a teenager. Because when he got out those clippers, I knew what was coming. He was like a sheep shearer, all right? In, in junior high, that just didn't go well in the, you know, looking cool and all that kind of stuff. But when he pulled those out, I knew the day. was going to just buzz it down to nothing. And I remember telling him on occasion, I said, Dad, you can't do it. I, I have a Nazareth vowel going on right now. <laughs> you know what? It didn't matter. He still did it anyway. It never worked. It never worked. So don't try. It. If you want to try that way, it doesn't work. The point was, you have to be different than the rest, right? Different than the rest. If you go to, as Samuel growing up, if he goes to somebody's wedding party and they're they're sharing the wine, as you know, that's a picture of the scriptures there. He didn't partake in that. He wore his hair really long, beard as well. He didn't just cut it. That stood out in a crowd. When his mom died, he didn't go. Think about it for a minute. He was not to be unclean for his father, or for his mother, or for his brother, or for his sister when they die. Because he was separated unto the Lord. Some of those things sound like pretty tough. They're tough consequences of a vow. Sacrifices made. But what was the point of the vow? I belong to the Lord. And that keeps it in the forefront, doesn't it? When you live in a society where nobody lives for the Lord, just call yourself a Nazarite, everyone says, oh, then you must be separated unto the Lord. That's what Hannah prayed. That's why she prayed from her side. I will give to you, Lord, someone who will serve you though there doesn't seem to be anybody else doing it. Lord, I, I will give you somebody who will invest their entire life in your service, though no one else seems to be doing that right now. I will set them apart to you, Lord, even though no one else seems to be set apart in such an ungodly day. I will set aside my son who you will give to me for that purpose. you take it down to real simple terms. So far in our study of how to live godly in an ungodly world, there are two things in front of you. Two simple things. Prayer. Never underestimate it. You're talking to the God who can do it. Prayer. Especially knowing that even when no one else can help, the Lord is always there and willing to be all that we need. Even in the word Yahweh, there's something in that in the Hebrew tense of that. When you turn it into a verb, it means I am. You knew that. Yahweh, Jehovah, Hebrew word I am. It's not only I am, but it's I will be. And it's also I was exactly what you needed. I am exactly what you need. I will be exactly what you're looking for. That's a pretty powerful phrase because God never ceased to be anything but I am. How is it that we often go to him after everything else is exhausted? He's always there. If we could emphasize this and and work it into our heart and just kind of plaster it there with something that doesn't fade. Remember, that's how you live in an ungodly world, is you talk to God. You go to Him. This world, it's not going to give you much. Do you know it's passing away? Do you know what God says about being a friend of the world, by the way? You go look that one up. They'll scare you. God is not impressed with people who are friends of the world. (laughs) He wants you to be His friend. But here it says, prayer. That's item number one we're learning in our passage and how important that is. Don't ever minimize it. And the second thing we saw today is dedication. It's just a simple word, but it's strong. Dedication to the Lord. Folks, if nobody else in this entire world is going to live for the Lord, will you? Will you? Will you be the one who says, if no one else would serve him, I will? Now, fortunately, that's, that's not a good word. I mean, that's like fortune. That's not what I like. Thankfully, you have a room full of people who are willing to say, I'm dedicated like that too. And that's great, because having a brother and sister in Christ beside you is better than being by yourself. But we live in an ungodly world. And there are churches folding to that. There are pastors folding to that. There are church members and Christians folding to that. And they're becoming like everybody else. And they're looking like everybody else. And you can't tell the difference between the world and the church building when you get inside. I hate to say it that way, but it's true. And I just want to know, as a church, if the whole world won't serve Him, will we? And as an individual, if the whole world won't serve Him, will we serve Him all the days of our life? Today is the start of such a commitment, isn't it? Because if you've never done that before, where do you start? You start right here. And how many days do you have? I don't know. He does. But what are you going to do with them? What can the Lord do with three days? What can the Lord do with seven days? We say, but I I don't know, Lord. I I don't have much to give. He knows that. Oh, he knows that. He knows our wretchedness. He knows that we come before him with nothing to bargain with except to say, Lord, I'm yours. And you hear my prayer. And if you take what I have, who I am, and what I am, and use it for your glory, I give that to you. I give it to you. You may not think that that's much, but God doesn't need anything to create the world. So he can certainly take whatever we bring. And he can make a masterpiece out of it. You want to be part of that? I don't know when Samuel found out from his mother that he was set apart for the Lord. She had several years with him to talk to him. And I imagine that was a theme that he heard a lot. Because he was a man who did it. This morning I just challenge you with a passage. It sounds so simple reading her prayer. 20 seconds and you're done. But I'm I'm wondering if you might give more than 20 seconds to the Lord today. Give Him what you have. It's a life that He's the one who gave in the first place. He's the one that bought with a price. He's the one that has made promises to you and loves you so much. He's the one that has prepared a place for you to come and live with Him forever. What are you going to do with the days you have left? Or the months you have left? Or the years you have left? Can you not say, Lord... I will give all these days that I have to serve you. That's called dedication. Let's pray about that, will you? Join me in prayer. Talk to the Lord yourself as we go through this moment. Lord, you can hear every single heart in this room right now. And how they call out to you. And I pray that they do. Dedication is a big thing. But it's always right when we do it in your presence to your service. And if somebody here today might de- be dedicating themselves to you. To say, I'll be different in this world. I'll live godly in an ungodly world. i live godly in my family. I'll live godly in my school. I'll live godly at the place I work. Lord, you hear that prayer. Those who say, I I will live godly the rest of my days. Lord, you hear that prayer. There might even be some among us who say, Lord, I would even give myself to serve you. Serve you overseas if you will have me go. Serve you in a ministry if you have me serve. Lord, I will give myself to you to do whatever you would have me do to your glory. And Lord, you hear that prayer. So often it's made in a, in a congregation. So often it's made in a application at the end of a service that somebody dedicates their life to the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that for all of us, we have an ambition in that regard today. That our hearts are crying out before the great God of hosts, the God of armies, who can do something with this life. That we're dedicated, Lord to serving you, however you have us serve, Even if it's just sitting at your feet, may we be content with where you put us. Lord, thank you for loving us like you do. Thank you that I can't is not in your vocabulary. We just come before you today just loving who you are and loving the fact that you love us. Thank you for this